You ever ask somebody how they're doing and their response is, I'm living the dream? But they're being sarcastic. They're not really living the dream. They're just sort of, that's their way of saying everything is basically going belly up. Um, and I'm living the exact opposite of the dream. Um, I have a message this morning entitled Living the Dream. I am living the dream. But hopefully over the next while you will get a clear perception of what the term living the dream actually means and what it involves. But I feel I am living the dream. Uh, Linda and I together, living the dream, that does not mean everything is hunky-dory and we have you know, just this, this blissful sort of calm waters to sail on. I mean this in a, in a profoundly biblical sense and I want to explain what I mean by it when I say I'm living the dream. And then throw the question out to you. Are you living the dream? Um, and this is one of those messages. I'd love to say this happens every week. But it doesn't happen every week. But every now and again you just feel a profound sense that this is God. That this really is something that, that he has distilled in, in my heart over this last week. And I hope I can communicate it to you effectively. So Acts chapter 16 and starting to read at verse 6. It says that Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart, to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So the background of this story, Paul has tried to go to Asia to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit didn't let him. That in itself seems strange. And he has tried to go to Bithynia to preach the gospel. And again, the Holy Spirit said, no, close the door. Not now. You're not going there now. And after trying these two things, Paul does what all men do when they're confused and they're not quite sure what to do next. He went to sleep and he rested. And during the night in that place of rest, he had a vision. Now, I don't know whether it was a dream and he saw this in a dream or whether he woke up during the night and he saw a vision as he was awake, I'm not sure. But it was while he was in a state of rest and sleep that God spoke to him. And maybe even as we start, there's a lesson there in itself. He wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go to Bithynia. He was all guns blazing, wanting to change the world. 
and it was almost as if God said, whenever you're ready to just stop and sit down, I will speak to you and I will give you direction instead of you trying to fix the whole universe by yourself. But Paul sees this vision of a Macedonian man and the man says to him, come over and help us. Now Macedonia was was a region and the lead city in the region of Macedonia was called Philippi, named after a guy called, come on you can do it, dig deep. Philip, yes, okay, it was named after a guy called Philip. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. If you've heard about him, he was a bad spud, and uh, Philip was his daddy. And this name, or this place, Philippi, was named after him. And what I want you to catch from the outset, when I say I am living the dream, I'm using the term dream to refer to the call of God. For Paul, on this occasion, during the night... He either had a dream or he saw a vision. The fine details are not important. The important thing is he received a call from God. And as throughout this message, as I refer to a dream, that's what I mean. I don't just mean something that happened one night because you had too much cheese before you went to bed. I mean a calling of God. Vision, dream, prophetic word, whatever you want to call it, that's what I'm referring to. And once you have the call of God on your life, everything changes. Everything. Paul identifies this when he wakes up the next day after, in in verse 9, he sees the vision during the night. And in verse 10, it says at the end of the verse, we concluded that God had called us. They identified and they discerned that in that dream, in that vision, God was placing a call on their lives And everything changes from that point. Everything becomes subordinate to the call and the vision of God that he has placed on your life. And sometimes people, one of the the questions that you get asked a lot in, in church, particularly younger Christians will ask, how do you know the voice of God? How do you discern that that dream was God or that vision was God? How do you know that it's not just your imagination? And it's always back to the same two things and predominantly the same thing. Prayer is a big, big part of it, but particularly the Word. The more you know this, the more you in your spirit become attuned to how God speaks and you recognize His voice. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they will not follow the voice of a stranger. I know, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but I know the voice of God. There are lots of thoughts that come in and out of my mind on a daily basis. But I know the voice of God. I don't have to go away and spend ages thinking, hmm, I wonder was that God or was that my own imagination? I wonder was that God or was that the devil somehow trying to mislead me? I know his voice. Something just rings inside me when he speaks. When he drops in a thought or an idea or a vision, I know. And the way I know, there's no quick fix, there's no shortcut. It's just years of being soaked in this that tunes me into the frequency that he speaks. And it's a good way to live. And I'm not one of these people who would claim to hear from God on a, on a daily basis about every little tiny thing. But I know his voice. When he needs to get my attention, he can get it. And there are dreams and visions in this room. 
no doubt about it, right? Some of you are carrying things already. Some of you have been carrying things and you've seen them start. When I talk about living the dream, I'm talking about what does it take between the dream coming to you, the calling coming to you, and you actually living in it and seeing it come to a reality. There are things that he's placed on on my heart. I've shared some of these with you before. Let me just share two. You've heard them before. Some of you, some of you haven't, so bear with me. The first time Linda and I came into Tandrigi to pray in the town, geographically in the town, in January 2015, we were prayer walking and we did this for about nine months throughout 2015, but we came in, we parked in the car park across the road, and I said to Linda, will you just pray and then we'll go our separate ways for an hour and a half and we'll meet for a cup of coffee. And as soon as she prayed, and I can't really explain the ins and outs of this, but I saw a man as soon as she prayed. And he was standing with his head hung low. He was dressed in black, head hanging down. He was the picture of despair and despondency and hopelessness and lifelessness. He was existing. He was not living. And I knew as soon as I saw him that he personified the town of Tandrigee. This man was Tandrigee that I was seeing. And as soon as Linda began to pray, he lifted up his head, his eyes were wide open, and he was looking around as if to say, what's that? What just happened there? And I felt God saying to me at that point, if you will geographically position yourself in the heart of the town, I will cause the town to lift up its head and take notice. When my kingdom comes, heads will lift. People who are hopeless and despondent will lift up their heads and pay attention to the presence of God and the presence of his kingdom. That was what I would call a vision. And then there was another one, a dream one night, where I was standing out on the main street, looking up the main street, and I saw a girl come running towards me. She was coming down this side of the street. She was wearing a wedding dress, and she was in her bare feet. It was lashing with rain, and the street lights weren't working. And I can see her face And as she was running down the street, she was terrified and there was something chasing her, although I could not see it. I could just in the dream discern that it was an incredible darkness within the physical darkness of the night, an incredible darkness that was coming down the street after her. It was a picture of tremendous fear. And as she was running down the street in her bare feet, in her wedding dress, she was banging on every single door as she went down the street and they were all locked. And she was desperate to get a place where she could go into and be safe because she wanted the purity of her wedding dress to be maintained. She didn't want it to be violated. She wanted to be protected. And there was a sense that something was after her and it wanted to take away her purity and she wanted to keep it. But there was nowhere where she could go to find protection. And I I can remember that like it was last night. It was vivid and it's etched in me. And, And I thought part of the ministry of table in this town is to protect young girls and young women. And have a place where they can come and while they're here, they're safe. So those are two things that for me are part of the dream and part of the call of God on my life and on our lives together as a ministry. There are many other things in my heart, many other things, and there are many other dreams in this room. How do you live the dream? How do you turn 
that thing that you know is from God. I know you want me to do this. How do you get it to become a reality? I want you to look at Paul's response. Immediately after the dream of verse 9, or the vision of verse 9, it says in verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once. At once. An immediate response to the call of God. Things started to shift. He started to readjust his life and his priorities. He was going to Philippi. Because of the call of God. He wasn't going to just sit around, write it down and think about it and lock it away for a while or whatever. He immediately, because he knew the voice of his father and because he was able to to know immediately, that's God, that's not my imagination, I didn't make it up. He starts putting things in place in order to turn the dream into a reality. Immediately. I can see him sitting with maps and and talking to people and saying, right, how do we get there? How long will it take? Who's coming with me? But he is immediately starting to put things into place to turn the dream into reality. He doesn't waste time and he doesn't hang about. And the man from Macedonia in Paul's vision said to him, come over here and help us. And Paul, bless him, has only one default response. When somebody wants help, Paul knows the only thing that will help them. And says at the end of verse 10, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And when you read Paul and you read gospel, you just, in your mind, that means Jesus. God had called us to bring Jesus to them. That's what help looks like. There are many ways that we bring Jesus to people, but Ultimately, the end goal of helping people is to get them to encounter Jesus. That's it. And I love creative ministry and I love people doing different things and and being allowed to run with the ideas that God has put on their heart. But for all of us in all of those things, that is the end goal, that people would be brought to Jesus. Because if they want help, that is the only place or he is the only place where it will come Paul's only goal in life is to exalt Jesus. He is obsessed, (laughs) absolutely obsessed with Jesus, obsessed with the gospel, not ashamed of it, and nothing in his life will distract him from bringing Jesus to people. Nothing. Everything else is secondary. Everything. I want to be gospel-obsessed and Jesus-obsessed. That all other things that I do, all other people, every other relationship, everything is behind him, beneath him. He is first and foremost, and how I live then is in response to him, what he calls me to do, and what it will take to bring people to him. I believe Matthew 6, where he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things will be added all the other things. When he's put first, he will take care of the other things. Paul is obsessed with Jesus. Are you obsessed with Jesus? Obsessed with him. Just in your mind all the time. You you lie down, your last thought at night literally is him. That's the truth. You wake up in the morning and your first thought is him. Are you obsessed with him the way Paul is? Because if you want to help 
people, then your aim in life is to bring them to Jesus. There's a song that we've been singing a fair bit this last few months. It's one of the best new songs that, that I think we encountered last year. I can't remember the actual title of it. It's that one where the chorus goes, what a, what, a, what a powerful name it is. But there's a line in it, and I just love singing it. It says, you have no rival. You have no equal. And for me, that's not a general uh, declaration of a theological truth. That's my heart crying out to Jesus saying, you have no rival in my life. You have no equal in my life. I'm obsessed with you. You are ahead and above all other things. This was the sort of heart that Paul had. And this is the sort of heart that it takes to live the dream. Right? Dreams will stay as dreams and visions and good ideas unless the people who are having them are obsessed with King Jesus. Those are the sort of people that will live the dream. The whole heart and ethos, and I'll say it again in case you forgot it, although I don't think you have, the whole ethos behind this place, the whole driving force even behind the name table is that Jesus in the New Testament is repeatedly seen eating with people who would otherwise not be allowed to encounter God not be allowed to go to the traditional religious forms and expressions of Judaism. Jesus threw the table wide open and said, you want to eat with me, come and eat with me. Leper, prostitute, drunk, tax collector, I don't care. You are welcome at the table to share life with Jesus. And Paul wants to create a place where people will encounter Jesus. The next thing that he does in verse 13 is that on the Sabbath... We went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. He takes the dream, the vision, the call, and he brings it to a place of prayer. Have you done that? And do you continue to do that with the dream that God has given you? If you have taken your foot off the gas in terms of praying over that vision and call of God on your life, Put that right today. Put it right. Bring the dream repeatedly to a place of prayer. Nothing will happen without prayer. Nothing. And we know that, but so frequently, me included, we don't live like it. We think our ideas and our strategies and our effort and our energy will be enough to get the job done. If you want to live the dream, you've got to pray over it. You've got to repeatedly bring it to the place of prayer. In verse 14, who do you share the dream with? One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Some versions of the Bible would say that she was a God-fearing woman. When you have a dream and a vision and a call from God, there's an instinct within your heart. You want to share it. Be careful who you share it with. Share it with people who fear God. We know that Lydia was the real deal because she was an extremely wealthy woman. The people who wore purple cloth were kings and leaders and royalty It was very expensive. She had a lot of money-making power. 
She could trade and she could make money seven days a week. She was in a culture where people did trade and make money seven days a week. But on Sabbath, she stopped and she went to the place of prayer. And that is one way of knowing that Lydia was the real deal, that her heart after God affected her, her life and her actions. She was not just a sort of a, you know, a church goer as such who, who ticks the box and whatever and doesn't really care that much about her walk with God. She allowed her desire for God to dictate what she did on a daily basis. She feared him. Do you fear God? I think sometimes we have talked so much about the fear of God being respect or reverence that we have taken away the fear of God. I'd like to think most of the kids, probably not all of them, but I'd like to think most of the kids I teach respect me. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just respect. The fear of God. I love Revelation 1 where we see a vision of Jesus where his head and hair are white like wool and his feet are like burnished bronze and he's wearing a golden sash around his waist and his face is shining like the sun. It's just incredible, awesome. And I have written beside it in my Bible, don't ever lose sight of his majesty. We can make Jesus very small. We can make God someone that we don't fear. It's good to fear God. If Jesus was to physically show up in this room, please don't think that you would reach out to shake his hand you would crumple in a heap on the floor. <laughs> the fear of God. If you have a dream and a vision and you have this desire, I need to talk to somebody about this, go to somebody who fears God. They're easy to spot. Because they will take it seriously. Usually the visions that God gives us, in fact, always the visions that God gives us, are way beyond what we can do ourselves. Way beyond. And if you bring that vision and that dream to someone who does not fear God, their response can be very discouraging. If you can bring it to somebody who fears God and who knows God and can discern his voice, they'll be saying to you here, I'm in. What do you need? I'm behind you in this. Be careful who you share the dream with. For Paul to have this dream of planting a church in Philippi, which was a Roman colony and didn't really do churches, was outrageous. You've got to be careful who you talk to about stuff like that. All right? Because some randomer who, who, who sort of tags along to church, their response could devastate you and hinder the progress of the dream. Share it with people who fear God. And Paul doesn't look for a building to host his dream. He looks for people to host it. He looks for allies who will understand what it is that God has put in his heart. Be careful who you share your dreams with. And I would invite you to share them with us. After the, the, that portion, we, we didn't read it, but in verse 16 to 18, Paul encounters demonic opposition. You want to live the dream? <laughs> you will encounter demonic opposition. I have been shouted at this last few years more times than I care to remember. <laughs> it is nothing ordinary. It really is. It's unbelievable the abuse that has sometimes come. And I've left and I've sort of sat sometimes after a conversation and just thought, where did that come from? 
that was not just a normal level of anger. That was a high level of anger. Where did that actually come from? In fact, I was talking to one guy about probably about two years ago now, and it was I say I was talking to him. I was holding the phone, <laughs> and, and just this tirade was coming out, and I was sort of holding the phone here, waiting for it to stop, and it didn't stop. And after about ten minutes, I said, "Listen, mate," I said. At some stage in your life, you're going to regret this conversation. You're going to regret the tone of it. You should maybe just choose your words a wee bit more carefully and then start it again, another whole shouting match. Sometimes you go, where does it come from? The degree of opposition. It's just incredible. Paul is, is going to the place of prayer in verse 16 and, and he's met by a slave girl who had a spirit, a demon, by which she predicted the future. And Paul casts the demon out of her, sets her free. You can expect to encounter demonic opposition. The term living the dream as I am using it is not smooth sailing. (laughs) It definitely is not the way the world uses the term. I'm talking about taking the dream that God gives you and making it a reality. What is the process in between? Process involves demonic opposition. And it also involves human opposition because as Paul casts the demon out of this girl, the guys that own her and that make money off her, they get angry. And you will find as you live the dream, you will encounter human opposition as well. People will oppose you. Strange people or people from strange, people you didn't expect to oppose you will oppose you. They will get in the way. They will challenge what you're doing because you're rattling their cages. These guys are getting their cages rattled because they were making money. Their business was profiting, but the kingdom of God has come to town. A man has come to town who has a dream and is determined to live the dream, and they're getting rattled by it. And so they start to oppose Paul and Silas. That will happen a lot as you live the dream from places you don't expect it. And what actually is happening is frequently in in the church and in a sort of a religious arena, you're getting opposition from other Christians. But I believe that what's happening is that their mediocre, half-baked walk with God is being exposed by your white-hot passion for Jesus. And their response is rarely to say, I'm inspired by your white-hot passion for Jesus. Their response is usually to start criticizing, nitpicking, arguing, because you're intimidating them, because you're obsessed with Jesus and with bringing people to Jesus. If you want to live the dream, you will have human opposition. Does living the dream sound glamorous to you? (laughs) It's a dirty job. And they're thrown in prison. Paul and Silas then, these guys that that owned the slave girl, they arrange for Paul and Silas to get chucked into prison. And somewhere God is smiling. (laughs) One of the things that you will encounter as you live the dream is that your circumstances frequently will be completely contradictory to the thing that God has called you to. Paul and Silas called to go to Philippi to bring the gospel to Philippi, to help people in Philippi, are in prison in Philippi. What good is that? (laughs) Seriously, God, could you not arrange things a little bit better? 
How can we help the people of Philippi as long as we are stuck here in prison? You need to prepare as you live the dream to face circumstances that will scream at you that you're not actually going to do the thing that God called you to do. That it will not come to reality. And in those circumstances, learn from Paul and Silas to trust and to praise God anyway. Because as they do that in the prison, you know the story of how there's an earthquake in the prison, the doors of the cells fly open, the chains fall off, and they are all free. And the jailer wants to commit suicide because he thinks everybody has escaped. And Paul says, we're still here. And the jailer comes to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And through the circumstances that seemed completely contradictory, Paul finds a man just at his feet saying to him, I want to know this Jesus. If you want to live the dream, you will face circumstances that are incompatible with the dream, but you've got to learn to praise and trust God in those circumstances that he will use them for the progress of the gospel. It's not a glamorous sort of a story. But there's a good ending. Go to Philippians chapter 1. And you'll see where this ends up for Paul. Because Paul does live the dream. As he writes Philippians, he's in prison again. But there's a phrase that, that he uses that has been on my mind for about a month. Near the start of, of chapter 1 of Philippians. He's writing to them, so, so think of the story that there's been from one night, he has this vision and he has the dream, and then he prepares for it, and he goes and he brings it to the place of prayer, and he shares it with God-fearing people, and he faces demonic opposition, human opposition, difficult circumstances, but now there's a church in Philippi that was not there before that night that he had the dream. It has come to reality. And it's, he writes to that church years later. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. This is the phrase. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership in the gospel. I used to think that just basically meant, well, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're partners in the gospel. It's not what he means. The, the word is, is the Greek word, you might have heard of it, koinonia, it means fellowship, but even fellowship doesn't mean a lot in Northern Ireland, more than tea and bickies and just you know, chatting with each other. This word is an active word. Partnership in the gospel means we are active together in bringing Jesus to people. It is a word that implies movement, activity, not just agreement or common, common beliefs, but actual momentum. And because Paul went through everything that he went through to live this dream, he now has the reality of a group of people who are partnering with him in the gospel in Philippi, so much so that it doesn't matter that he's not even there. He's in prison but the gospel cannot be chained even though he has been chained. There are a collective of people now who are partnering and working together to bring Jesus to the city of Philippi. The dream is a reality. And Paul goes on to write in verse 6, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Again, I used to think of that in an individualistic way. The work that God has begun in me, he will bring to completion, and that is true. But I think in context, Paul is writing to this church, and he's saying, you know, way back that day at the river, when a work began, conversations began, and we prayed over this calling together, something began, and God will bring that work in Philippi to the completion that he wants to bring it to. And that's what I want, that's what we want here. A partnership in the gospel. A collective of people who are living the big dream and also living their own individual dreams and callings and seeing them come to reality. And not walking on their own through demonic and human opposition but walking collectively as a church through those things. So as your ministry in this place and in this town comes under attack and struggles or you get discouraged that there's a squad of people around you partnering with you in the gospel to make sure that you actually see the work completed that God started. The work of bringing a dream to reality is dirty work. I want to show you one illustration from 2 Kings and then I'm done. Are you living the dream? Or did you have the dream, start the process, and then find the whole thing has ground to a halt? Believe the Holy Spirit can reactivate it again and you can get back on track. But I think a lot of people, they'll talk and talk about what God has called them to. But when it comes to the dirty work of actually living it out, Frequently, they, they're, because maybe they're on their own, they don't maybe have a community around them, they don't maybe have the encouragement for a whole myriad of reasons, the dream grinds to a halt because the actual reality of living it has been too hard. Oh, guys, let's watch each other's backs. Let's encourage one another in the different ministries that are being birthed in this place so that no one ever feels, oh, this is too hard. That when someone feels that this is too hard, even if you've never been involved in the actual ministry that they're, that they're running or that they're doing for the king, that you're rallying behind them and encouraging them to keep on living it and not to fall in the opposition, that you're holding them up whenever it gets too tough for them. In 2 Kings chapter 3, there's a great little picture of what it takes to live the dream. Without going into too much detail, time's gone. But we have the armies of Israel and Judah and Edom all together, all going to battle against Moab. But they've ran out of water. And they're in this valley and they're in the middle of a seven-day journey. And they're only three days into it and the water's ran out. And they go to find a prophet. And they find Elisha who is a wonderfully ignorant man. And he basically says, clear off. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't like you. Um, but, the, but when he realizes that one of the kings is there from Judah, he says, because you're there, I'll talk to you. But the others have no time for it at all. But he prays and he goes to God to find out what do they need to do in this situation. They have no water. And God speaks to him in verse 16 of 2 Kings chapter 3. And tells him something daft. Make this valley full of ditches. The valley's dry, 
there's no water, there's no rain, and God says to Elisha, make the valley full of ditches. Dig some ditches. That's the vision. All right, compare that to Paul that night when he saw the Macedonian man. Elisha has seen a vision. There's a calling has been placed. Dig some ditches. And he goes and he shares this with the, the leaders of the armies and tells them, this valley will be full of water. You better get digging. And at that point, there's a decision to be made. A dream has come. Are we going to live the dream or not? Because living the dream involves getting a spade. It involves sweat. involves getting your boots dirty. It involves blisters on your hands. It involves a sore back. If you want to see the vision that God has given to the prophet actually become a reality, you've got some dirty work to do in the middle. Dirty work. And at that point, I think that's where a lot of the people of God step back and say, ah, no, it's a lovely vision, lovely picture. I'll think about it. I'll talk about it now and again. I'll wheel it out every four or five years to tell people and make myself feel good because God spoke to me once. But you know, this, this whole digging thing, nah, nah, no, no, no. I don't want the pain. I don't want the discomfort. I don't want the dirt. We'll, we'll just leave it in the journal and not actually do anything about it. But these guys go and they dig their ditches and the next day the valley is full of water. You've got to dig the ditch before the water comes. If the dream is to become a reality, you have things to do in the meantime to make it happen. I watched the news in, in 2014 when there was really bad flooding in England, really bad. I watched this massive digger one day dredging a river just reaching in and lifting out loads of stuff from the bottom of the river in order to let the water get away. And I was watching it thinking, mate, you're too late. <laughs> the water has already come. There is no point in digging the ditch now. You dig the ditch in faith and you believe God is going to move. He is calling us to something. We have to put things in place to make the dream a reality, but it's hard slog. Are you up for it? I'm living the dream. I'm getting shouted at. <laughs> I'm facing opposition. I'm facing frequently circumstances that seem to say to me, no, nah, this ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. But I keep on praising him and trusting him. What is it? Right? So just as we finish, what is it that God, I'll close this over to give you hope. <laughs> what is it that God has placed in your heart and so it's, it's a big thing. It's an amazing thing. But somewhere in that process of actually living it, oh, it's just, it's got tough. And I'm not belittling how tough it can get. And I just really feel that a word from God this morning, if you want to live the dream, you've got to dig the ditches and I just want to remind you of the process that Paul went through. He had the dream. He prepared immediately. He took it to the place of prayer. He shared it with people who feared God, who would stand with him in it and not belittle it. He faced demonic opposition. He faced human opposition. He faced incompatible circumstances. But yet the dream became a reality. He lived it. I'm living the dream. I'm living the dream. And I want to keep living the dream. And I want to see every one of you, because I know loads of you, 
have dreams in here from God. And I want, I want this to be a place where we, get, we rally around behind each other and we say, yes, go on, live the dream. We're with you. And whenever you fall because the digging has got too hard, we will grab you and we'll pull you up and we'll put you on your way again. Amen. Aaron, do you want to come ahead and I'll, I'll pray.